This is AWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine, from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Hi, this is uh, Richard Ingebretson from the University of Utah School of Medicine. We're talking about uh, skin problems that plague us in the backcountry, wilderness dermatology. Uh, Some plants uh, will cause itchy rashes when touched. Uh, A lot of these are just common garden plants and cause irritants for people who have sensitive skin. And maybe parts of the plants that irritate like the sap, or it might be the roots of the hyacinth. For some people, any part of a plant could cause irritation. And the list goes on. However, it really is the sap of poison ivy, poison oak, and poison sumac, and the spine of the stinging nettle that cause uh, most problems for people when they go outside. We're going to talk about poison ivy, poison oak, and poison sumac first. These plants are really quite famous. Uh, They belong to the genus of a set of plants called the toxodendrons. They all contain a resin called erushiol, which is responsible for the characteristic reaction. Erushiol is uh, contained uh, within the leaves, uh, with the fruit root, and the stem of the plants. Uh, it is not a defensive measure. Instead, it really helps the plant to retain water. In fact, it's frequently eaten by animals like deer and bears. And it's not on the surface of the leaves. So by just barely touching the leaves, if they've not been disturbed, you won't get a ruchiol on you. Uh, but it's not difficult to break open the leaves and expose the ruchiol. Raindrops uh, uh, can do that. A ruchiol is remarkably adhesive. It clings to everything. Pants, garden tools, pets, clothing, shirts... It's very heat-stable and can attach to smoke particles, making it possible for people who burn these plants to breathe it into the airways and lungs, uh, causing just a frightening possibility. I have treated that, and it is uh, very difficult. That's the one time where these things can become uh, uh, lethal. The toxin is resistant and lasts on objects for months, and uh, studies have shown that it can even last for years. It's estimated that about 85% of the population will develop an allergic reaction if exposed to erushiol. When you're first exposed, you might have just a simple rash. Like any allergic reaction, it may be minor, but then with subsequent exposures uh, to uh, erushiol, the reaction can get uh, more profound. The plants are found throughout the United States. In general, poison ivy grows east of the Rocky Mountains, Poison oak grows west of the Rocky Mountains, and poison sumac grows in the southeast United States. The plants may look different depending upon the season and the area where they're growing, but you should become familiar with all of these and how they look. All of the plants have white, uh, small, tan cream or yellow berries in the fall. These berries can help distinguish them from harmless but similar plants. After the leaves have fallen off, the plants sometimes can be identified by the black color on areas where the oil in the plant, which is the erushiol, has been exposed to air. Uh, It's found, uh, poison ivy can be found really anywhere in the United States, mostly east, the Rocky Mountains, but it's not found in Alaska or Hawaii. Um, It is less common out of the United States, but but still found on every single continent. 
that has three broad leaves, and so that's why they say leaves of three uh, let it be. It grows as a climbing vine or as a low spreading vine that sprawls through the grasses. It can be a shrub more common uh, in the northern states, Canada, the Great Lakes region. It's definitely a hazard for rafters and boaters because it often grows along rivers, uh, lakefronts, and uh, ocean beaches. I've, I've been kayaking and rafting where I pulled up to a beach and re- ready to grab a plant, and it turned out to be uh, poison ivy. Um, no, none of these plants, sumac, oak, and ivy, uh, grow above 4,000 feet or 1,200 meters very well. So the, uh, the higher elevations in places such as the mountains are relatively free. None of the plants grow well in deserts, except unless they're on the banks of a river stream or in ponds, in, in canyons, and in washes. And they will grow there, and they can be in the desert areas. Heavy rainfall can make a dormant plant uh, grow again. Uh, the reaction is called uh, toxogendron dermatitis. It is a type 4 hypersensitivity reaction. The erythritol contacts the skin after direct encounter or contact with a secondary host, such as a pet or a piece of clothing or a tool. And once the erythritol contacts the skin, it seeps through the protective epidermal layer, uh, levels and uh, binds deeply. Uh, then what happens is the toxin is detected by antigen-presenting cells that migrate to the lymph nodes and activate T-cells. The cytotoxic T-cells mount on an attack that leads to the vasodilation and the characteristic tissue response at the site of the skin contact. Once an exposure has caused the formation of clonal T lymphocytes, a subsequent exposure may cause a much more rapid response. The most common reaction from exposure to one of these plants is an itchy red rash on the skin that came in contact with the plant. The rash often includes fluid-filled vesicles in a linear arrangement uh, rather than a flat one. Vesicles do not contain erythritol, and the rupture of the vesicles doesn't spread uh, the rash. In a first-time exposure, the appearance of skin lesion is common within 24 to 48 hours, but may be delayed for up to several weeks. For someone who's allergic, the rash appears between four hours, maybe up to 96 hours after exposure. The time of onset of the rash can be difficult to describe because erythritol can cause a rash that is due to both contact irritation and allergic response. A small minority of the population is considered exquisitely sensitive to erythritol, These patients will develop a rash within hours of exposure, and they need uh, more advanced and immediate treatment. Avoidance of the plants is the surest prevention of poison ivy or contact dermatitis. Full-length clothing helps prevent direct contact with the plants, but the Rushi resin can seek through the protective clothing, even rubber gloves and leather gloves. You have to be really careful. Vinyl gloves uh, turn out to be an effective barrier. Once exposed, the area should be washed. A person with an average allergic response can prevent an immune reaction by washing off the resin within about 15 or 20 minutes. The efficacy of rinsing the affected area seems to diminish as time passes. Rinsing with warm or cold water will help remove the resin without opening pores, enhancing absorption into the skin. There's a lot of cold water in the backcountry, typically if you're around rivers or if you have water. So that's important to use. It's just cold water. Mild hand soaps and non-abrasive rubbing are also recommended. Uh, rubbing alcohol is effective at removing the erythritol resin from the skin and from tools and clothing. But when you do all this, take care to avoid reusing uh, the cotton or the clothing to prevent the spread of the resin. 
when cleaning, take special care to remove resin from fingernails. Uh, that is a real common problem uh, and uh, causes spread. A mild rash involves minimal exposure to the ruchiol, causing only very small eruptions on the skin. If ab available, you can use high-potency topical steroid creams before the formation of the vesicles to offer some relief, and it can even stop or blunt the uh, allergic response. However, after vesicles have formed, topical steroids uh, may not change the course of the allergic reaction, even though that they will uh, maybe help with the, with the itching. Antihistamines can provide some relief. The skin irritation can be soothed with calamine lotion or vino oatmeal bath soaks, burrows solution or dome burrows. Astringent solution may be applied to dry weeping uh, areas for uh, relief, of, uh, relief of the itching. And uh, uh, patients that I've worked with have said that that has given them, and a lot of times their kids, the greatest relief. But it must be remembered that these topical products offer relief, but do not really alter the course of the dermatitis. If the rash is larger, the treatment should include oral steroids. Prednisone is the drug of choice in this case. If the reaction causes airway or genital swelling or involves a large amount of body surface area, the patient might need hospital care. Well, that's not usually the case. Evacuation might be considered if a patient is having a big reaction and has uncontrolled itching. Most cases of poison ivy, contact dermatitis, are self-limiting and usually resolve on their own in one or two weeks without any treatment. A lot of it depends upon the patient and what they want to do if the itching is too significant or too broad. Vesicles will eventually rupture, crust over, and then heal. Uh, and some of the patients, the, the linear rash is so small that they don't want anything done. Uh, it's going to be a, a judgment call. It's been my own experience that most cases of, of uh, the uh, contact dermatitis that I've treated from poison ivy rashes have needed oral steroids, although a couple have just used topical steroids. Uh, I had one patient who had a very small rash on his arm. He didn't want any care, and it went away on its own. There are some uh, products uh, that are over the counter that you can buy that tend to help. Uh, Zanfel Poison Ivy Wash is one of those. Uh, studies have been shown that it, uh, that it, it will remove the urushal from the skin any time uh, after the outbreak. It can provide relief of itching and pain. Zanfel works by binding to the urushal oil, and when washed off, uh, takes the oil with it. Techno Extreme works in a similar fashion. The leaves and the juice from the stem of the, of the jewelweed plant can also be used as a treatment for poison ivy, poison oak, and other plant-induced uh, rashes, as well as many of the uh, types of contact dermatitis. A lot of people come to me and say jewelweed works for them the best. Uh, it works by counter-reacting uh, uh, with the chemicals in the other plants, and with the poison ivy that caused the irritation. But the most uh, critical first step in eliminating the rash is to remove the Rochelle resin before you try these. I had one experience where I was teaching some medical students, uh, and they had been hiking in Moab, in central Utah in the United States, and uh, one of the students received uh, uh, a contact dermatitis rash from poison ivy. It was on both legs. And, and when we came back and he went to class, he showed the class the rash, and I said, well, let's do an experiment. Let's rub high-potency steroid on one leg, and let's rub Xanfel on the other. And um, he went the next day and bought both and rubbed one on each leg. He came back the next night, and it was his story that the Xanfel uh, took the, uh, the rash and the itching uh, quite away almost immediately. The high-potency steroid had worked, but not as effectively or as quickly. Well, that's been my only experience. That's an end of one, but I can just pass that on to you. Um, so... 
um, if you're allergic to poison ivy, you want to watch it very closely. If you know you're not, then it's not as dangerous. You don't inherit um, allergies, and you only get them after exposure. So you might not have it the first time, and uh, but you will uh, develop it with more uh, uh, contact to that plant. Well, the other uh, thing we want to talk about as far as a plant is the stinging nettle. Uh, this, uh, the stinging nettle is the best-known member of the nettle family. It grows throughout United States, Europe, Asia, Southern Islands, Australia, New Zealand, and North Africa. Uh, it, it, it tends to grow in like dense patches near streams along hiking trails, which is why it gets to be a real problem. It's in ditches around farmland, uh, often where earth uh, has been disturbed. The stems of the sting, stinging nettle are singular with like these little branches, and it can grow to six to eight feet tall, and they tend to overgrow trails. The stems may be green or purple. They typically tend to be more green and may and may not have a, a stinging hairs on them. The stem part of the leaf and the undersides of the leaves also have these stinging hairs. Coming into contact with stinging nettle causes a sharp, painful sting, followed by a burning sensation and sometimes itching. The irritation can last for several hours and cause hives near the site of the contact, which can last up to a day or so. But here's the key thing about stinging nettle. It's important not to touch the rash for the first 10 minutes after you get the sting. There is a tendency to rub it, but if you think this is what it is, don't do it. This is because if the chemicals are allowed to dry on the skin, they're much, much easier to remove. And any touching or rubbing could push the chemicals deeper into the skin and cause the reaction to be more severe and last longer. So if you've been stung with this, let it alone. It'll itch and sting, and then wash it off. And after uh, you do so, uh, uh, use soap and water, the chemicals uh, will come away from the skin. And in a lot of people, this will be enough to significantly reduce uh, or altogether remove the pain, itching, or swelling. Use a clean cloth if, uh, you're not, if you aren't close to soap and water until the area can be adequately cleaned. After cleaning, use a sturdy tape to remove any of the remaining fibers and then th- those little nettles uh, from the skin. This action will usually bring relief quickly, but sometimes the effects of the sting can last up to 24 hours, maybe a little bit longer. Avoid hot temperatures and scratching as these can further irritate the area. Cool compresses can be applied for, for relief in that area. You can also try aloe vera, uh, and a paste made from baking soda and water. A lot of people say that that's the one that you should use. Anything that you can put on the skin should be dabbed, not rubbed. Topical creams, lotions, ointments that contain hydrocortisone can feel soothing and may help to relieve the redness and itching. Oral antihistamines uh, should be effective. Typically, you don't have to use uh, oral steroids uh, when you're uh, treating stinging nettle. So the last subject uh, is going to be sunburn, something that uh, everyone has had. Um, Not a lot of people know just exactly what causes it and, uh, and exactly how to treat it. Sunburn is an inflammation of the skin. It is a burn, just like any burn, but it is caused by ultraviolet rays that come from the sun. Ultraviolet is uh, the next set of uh, electromagnetic radiation next to x-rays, so you get an idea of how much energy they contain. For the purposes of discussion, uh, we usually divide ultraviolet into UVA, UVB, and even UVC, although we're not going to talk about UVC. UVA is the least energetic. UVB is the more energetic. And as you move, become more energetic, you move closer to x-rays. Uh, UVA rays penetrate the skin, the skin deeply. They damage the DNA of the skin cells, contributing to the development of skin cancers. UVB, and uh, we often teach that UVB stands for burn, B for burn. UVB rays affect the more superficial layers of the skin 
and are the chief cause of skin reddening and sunburns. They also play a role in the development of skin cancer and wrinkling primarily. The tanning effect of the skin is also res responsive to UV and UVB exposure. Ultraviolet light is not safe for the skin. Just simple and plain. I'm going to add a caveat to it in that ultraviolet, though, gives energy for the formation of, of vitamin D. And so some sunlight is good. And I don't mean to go off and say that you shouldn't get any, but generally speaking, for the purposes of the skin, ultraviolet light is not safe. Uh, ultraviolet rays strike the skin and cause multiple effects. Skin redness appears as the local blood vessels dilate and inflammatory substances like histamine are released. Fair-skinned people are particularly susceptible to sunburn because their skin produces only a small amount of the protective pigment melanin. Even darker-skinned people, uh, while they have a lower risk, can develop skin cancer. Most everyone has had a sunburn and can diagnose one. The symptoms can vary from mild redness and warmth of the skin to severe pain and blistering. However, the classification of sunburn is first-degree and second-degree burns. First-degree burn is, is exhibited with redness and pain that may peel but heal within a few days. A second-degree uh, sunburn will have redness and pain but may also have blisters and cause systemic symptoms such as fever, chills, headache. The best way to treat a sunburn really is to avoid one. That sounds silly, but that really is the answer. Uh, don't get a sunburn. In the wilderness, sunburn can cause significant problems. It can include ending someone's trip. People should limit sun exposure to early in the late in the day or in the evening and keep contact time to a minimum. Covering up to prevent sunburn is really the best. Wear breathable full-length clothing, use wide-rim hats, and seek shade. When the sun cannot be avoided, sunscreen should be applied. And that is the rule. You should avoid by covering up, and then if you have to, you put on the sunscreen. Sunscreen works, but not as well as covering with clothes. Everyone six months of age and older should use sunscreens, and infants younger than six months of age should be kept out of the sun because their skin is thin and very susceptible to burning. Sunscreens have not been approved for infants. Cover up the babies and the toddlers. Several studies in the early 2000s, one came out of uh, Australia and the other was a Swedish study, showed that people that were wearing sunscreen developed far more skin cancers. And this scared everybody. And they looked at why, and it wasn't because the, the creams or the ointments were doing it. It was because sunscreens contain the chemical PABA, which screens UVB rays, but it doesn't screen UVA rays. UVA rays are the ones that cause cancer. Sunscreens do not prevent cancer. They prevent sunburn. And that becomes an important concept. And when they did these studies and they realized that, there has been a movement in the years since to get rid of terms that, uh, that would suggest that these prevent cancer. They also do not protect against wrinkling. The best way to prevent skin cancers is to cover up. There are new, newer agents out there that are full spectrum that seek to deal with these issues, but they are not as successful as just covering up with clothes or staying out of the sun. It's things like zinc oxide. They're very pasty and oily. Just better to put on clothes. Sunscreen should be applied to dry skin 30 minutes before sun exposure. Sunscreens must be reapplied after two hours or sooner if sweating or swimming. There is no such thing as waterproof sunscreens. They lose their effectiveness very rapidly. Um, sunscreen effectiveness is affected by what is called the SPF, which uh, despite the fact that very few people know what it is, SPF is actually pretty straightforward. Uh, 
SPF, of course, stands for sun protection factor. It is a measure of the sunscreen's ability to protect your skin from the UVB rays. The basic calculation works like this. If it takes one minute for you for your unprotected skin to start turning red in the sun, using an SPF 15 sunscreen theoretically prevents reddening 15 times longer, like 15 minutes. Uh, if someone purchases an SPF of 30, uh, if it is typically, it takes 10 minutes for that person's skin to, to start to burn by using the SPF 30, they will theoretically prote be protected in the sun for 300 minutes or five hours. However, sunscreens wash off the skin evenly. Even sweat will cause it to wear away. There is no such thing as uh, waterproof sunscreens, and they do not last all day. There is uh, a lot of discussion and debate about how much time someone should be out in the sun. We like to go outside. We like to hike in the sun. We like to recreate outside when it's sunny. We like to swim. Ultraviolet light, especially ultraviolet B or UVB, is needed for the production of vitamin D. Human skin actually makes large amounts of vitamin D when lots of skin is exposed to the sun. The body is designed to get the vitamin D it needs by producing it when you bear your skin to, uh, to sunlight. So this remains a challenge. And when you talk to people and when you make your decisions, you've got to talk about the proper exposure to the sun. This is key to avoiding sunburns and skin cancer while obtaining appropriate levels of vitamin D. So the mainstays of therapy for sunburns are pain control and skin care. Pain control can be achieved with a Tylenol, Paracetamol, uh, Ibuprofen, and histamines can provide uh, relief from itching. Uh, the cool soaks in water or applying moisturizers such as aloe vera are, ex are excellent. And two times in my medical career, I put aloe vera on a sunburn that had an immediate relief of the pain only to come back with an allergic reaction to some of the compounds that are in the liquid that contains the aloe vera also. Watch for that. Topical steroids really have not uh, had any benefit. First-degree burns heal within a few days. Uh, when somebody does get a, a sunburn, you've got to keep them out of the sun. For a second-degree sunburns that have redness and pain, but also more extensive things like blisters and large systemic symptoms such as fever, chills, and headache, uh, therapies for first-degree burns may not be enough. If a large uh, body area is involved, if systemic symptoms such as these occur and you can't control the pain, then the patient should be evacuated. Keep them out of the sun is the answer, and if they get a sunburn, definitely keep them out of the sun. Well, this ends the podcast on wilderness dermatology. Thank you for listening. Thank you.